We are live from the Empire of Lies. This is a free speech zone, a no censorship zone, a great conversation zone in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm Liz Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Saying hi to your producer, Rod from Philly. Hey, Rod, how you doing? I'm doing well, Lee. Can't complain. How about yourself? I won't complain. I could a little bit, but I won't. Because it's better not to hear me complain. Great show today you put together for us, Rod. In the first hour, we have the great Manila Chan from the show Fault Lines. Correct? Correct. (laughs) I'm just making sure I've gotten this right so far. And... Then Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies in the second hour, and guest co-host Carter Aaron. How do I do, Rod? I'll give, I'll give you a A minus. That's the show, okay. I, I, okay, I'll take the A minus. I won't quibble. I won't even ask why. This is Backstory. I'm also gonna give a mention to our callers and 202-521-1320. After the horrible mass shooting of children, we had a lot of calls yesterday. And I invite people to call in again if they have any thoughts on their head about it. But I want to talk about something. I was listening to NPR this morning because, you know, it's one of the networks that I listen to to prepare for the show because they take an establishment right and very white bent, you know, viewpoint. So it's 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 basically a neoliberal white channel. Do you think that's fair to say, Rod? Is that racist? No, no, I think that's right. <clears throat> I know a lot of people who used to listen to NPR and they slowly but surely saw that it was changing and they didn't like it. Yeah, now and but but their predictable viewpoint. I know what you're going to get there. Does that make sense? And that's why I listen to Fox News, because I know what I'm going to get there. And I'll listen to MSNBC, because I I like knowing what I'm going to get there. But they were doing a story about the shooting. And at the end of the day, the horrible thing about this shooting, one of the horrible things, is the news coverage going on for days because they have nothing to say. At this point, what new news is there? What new thing are you going to find out? You're not going to figure out what this person's motivation was exactly. Evil. I I don't know how to put it. They chose to go shoot up a school after shooting a grandmother. We know that because they told a friend of theirs. You see that? There's Facebook messages. But yeah, I did see that. Yeah, I saw that. And they decide to shoot up an elementary school. Their words. We're not going to find an explanation that's good. Does that make sense? You're not going to hear anything that makes you go, oh, that explains it. He was bullied by fourth graders. There's not going to be anything that makes this make any sense. It's a horrible crime done by a person clearly with mental issues, but also evil issues. I don't, I don't know how to put it. If the term evil gets thrown around, this is a good place to throw it around loosely. 
if you kill 19 children and two adults, you're evil. And if that makes you feel bad, I don't care too much about making evil people feel bad. But, Rod, do you see what I'm saying? That there's going to be no explanation for this. Yeah, that's, I don't, I don't personally, I agree with you. I don't think we should be um, seeking some type of grand explanation of why this young man did this. Um, You know, even, even if we did, what what would that, you know, what would that do? Because, I mean, you know, it's a a big country with a lot of people, uh, you know, can't, you can't uh, micromanage everybody, you know what I mean? So there's no way, but, you know, as far as like the social media messages, you know, you have all these people who work for these companies who moderate this stuff. Like how did they not, don't they have something to filter, uh, you know, possible active shooters or something like that? Not, but not really. Cause they really don't. Cause they'd have to be monitoring everybody and seeing who's sending a message to about what and did they mean that as a joke or is it just something weird the person said that they really have no way of monitoring it i don't think i you know if someone wants to suggest one i think if you let the algorithm do it it's very dangerous because the algorithm if it's looking for shit of a school it's going to flag a lot of people and falsely flag a lot of people and then you get stories about people being, you know, the police showing up at their house because they said something to a friend of theirs about we need to stop, stop school shootings or whatever. And the algorithm picked it up. So, but however, NPR and Fox and everybody, ABC, NBC, CBS, they all have to keep talking about this story because it's a big story. So they have to keep talking about it when they have nothing more to say. Does that make sense? No, I agree. And I, 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 you know, I've come to the conclusion of how the media works and, um, you know, I don't think that I, whether they are aware or not aware, them constantly talking about this and not, you know, going anywhere with it, I think makes things, people's mood worse in this country, you know, especially us, the parents. Uh, I saw somebody I know who's a mother, who said she was thinking about homeschooling her kids after this. And I was just like, oh, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Now, now, I said yesterday, Russell Brand, who I like, I'm a fan, did a video. And he, I thought it was very good in the video. And he talked about some of the spiritual aspects about this. And in a woo-woo kind of way, he's not a traditional religion person. But I like that. And... uh but he talked about the concept of not making it worse and that division, sowing division among people is a negative and that perhaps sharing some things that make people realize their universality, what, what unites us all would be a good result of this. And I agree with that broadly. So I'm going to say something that is ostensibly, because here's the fact. We're all people. We're all individual human beings. Individual human beings with different perspectives and lenses on the world. But 
we also belong to groups, right? And everybody simultaneously has an individual identity and a group identity. So I want to talk about how NPR promoted division. And I'm going to point it out because it's typical of our age. And I'm going to do it by promoting, apparently, by addressing the fact that there's group identity. And, but group identity, here's a, here's a trick about it. Group identity is universal. Everybody's got it. Therefore, if I were to make a reference to driving, you know, driving home on a Sunday night in the back seat with your parents driving and listening to ads for buttermilk biscuits and Leo Kotke on the radio, does that make any sense to you, Rod? What I just said. Am I speaking anything that makes any sense? Uh, the music part, I didn't. I don't. You know, personally, I don't know any about. But uh, you know, if you you know drive home and your your parents are driving and you're in the back of the car, you know that's uh, some like a, a little memory. But, but the music, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And and ads for buttermilk biscuits. Does that make any sense to you? No. Okay. That was a white reference. That was a very white reference. Anyone who's white and was an NPR listener knows what I'm talking about. That's a reference to Prairie Home Companion, the Garrison Keillor show that used to play on weekend nights on NPR. And a lot of white kids drive it home in the back of the Volvo or whatever from grandma's house would listen to NPR and Prairie Home Companion and they used to have ads for buttermilk biscuits. And Leo Kotke, who's a fantastic guitarist, would be on that show a lot. Now, if you got that reference, you grew up with a certain kind of background. And it's fair to say the brothers weren't listening to Garrison Keillor. Is that fair to say, Rod? Uh, yeah, I've never heard that, uh, that person's name. So first time. There you today. go. And and a Prairie Home Companion was a very popular show for many years on NPR. And it there clearly there are going to be some black people who get that reference, but largely it's a white person upper middle class reference. It's a certain type of person, but that's okay because you could make black references that no no white person is going to get. It's you, you know what I saw trending the other day on Twitter? Piggly Wiggly. And apparently black Twitter was all ablaze about it because they were stunned. That, now, I like Piggly Wiggly. I have a Piggly Wiggly shirt. Piggly Wiggly was a chain of grocery stores in some parts of the upper Midwest, but mostly the South. And a lot of people grew up, so it's not just a black reference, it's a white Southern reference too. And I'm pointing out that we have these different groups, but you've heard of black Twitter, right, Rod? Yeah, I'm very, I'm very uh, <laughs> comfortable. I know a lot about black Twitter. Okay, now, so, but that comes up sometimes. 
and I'm bringing up Black Twitter for a reason. I'm just going to point out that in the same way you can point to white references like NPR, you can also point to black references, and it's not racist, right? None of it's racist. It's just pointing out differences. Any number of groups have references they get and that they don't get. So, for instance, is there a MAGA Twitter? Is there a Donald Trump supporting Twitter? Clearly, right? Yeah, of course. Right. And if they make certain jokes about Hillary Clinton, other people in that group will get it. But what this NPR story did yesterday, that this morning that I heard, was they were talking about, and on far right, which is their way of saying maggot Twitter, they said, on far right social media, conspiratorial rumors are starting about this shooting. And they named a few conspiratorial rumors about the shooting. And what's the goal of a story that says, here's far-right conspiracy theories about the shooting? What, what, what is the point of that story written bro- broadly? Why would you do that story, Rod? Why would, why would NPR do a story like that? Uh, to sow divisions and pretty much to uh, categorize people on the right or you know Trump supporters insensitive to this to the school shooting, you know they're they're immediately immediately going to conspiracy theories instead of you know being sensitive to the to the deaths. Right, and 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 to sow division to say you, the white liberal people listening to this who look down at at far right far right are morons. You're you're concerned. We're going to do a story suddenly making fun of them. But what I'll say is, from what I know about black Twitter, and I found this out when I was covering the Pigford story, and I'll give an example. Black Twitter, as far as I know, is about as conspiratorial as MAGA Twitter. Does that sound right to you, Rod? Yeah, I would, I would, agree. I would agree with that, yeah. And I'm not making fun of that. I'm saying it's something that binds people together. When you have these subgroups and they know that they're not getting straight information. So if people have quote unquote conspiracy theories about the shooting, it's because they're trying to make sense of it. And what people know in MAGA Twitter, as well as black Twitter, is that the government lies to them. Right. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, that's that, that's 100 percent. And they may disagree slightly about some of the stuff that the government lies to them about. But they know that the government has a long history of lying to them. And if they had done a story on NPR this morning saying, well, let's look at the wacky conspiracy that, that black Twitter is doing. I guarantee you. There's wacky conspiracy theories that Black Twitter is doing. And I'm using that phrase as a descriptor, not saying they're wrong, because I don't know what's going on. But where I learned about this with Black Twitter especially, remember the Sandra Bland case, the woman who killed herself in custody in a Texas jail after being pulled over by a white cop? Remember the Sandra Bland case, Rod? Yeah, 
Yeah, of course. And did you see, I didn't see this on MAGA Twitter. I saw no conspiracy theories that Sandra Bland didn't kill herself, that she was murdered in jail. But that was in black Twitter, correct? Yeah, that was the uh, the assumption that was being put out there that she was murdered, you know, by racist police, and uh, that she hung her, that they, you know, killed her, and then they hung her or hanged her to make it seem like she hanged herself. And also, some high level conspiracies, for instance, you know, uh, for instance, Jay Z's and a number of people talked about the Illuminati. You know what I'm talking about? The the black Illuminati talking about that issue. It's weird to oh, me. You're, talk, you're talking about in the music industry, Illuminati, like when Jay-Z throws up, you know, the rock with his hands together. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And there's a unique black take on it. And again, it's not universal. And it's not genetic. No one was talking about Jay-Z and the Illuminati because there are certain genetic makeup. If you grew up, if you were adopted into that a white household, upper middle class, you probably got the NPR reference I was saying before. And if you grew up in a hood neighborhood, you probably get the JG reference. So I'm but I'm saying no they don't they don't do it about it they would never do a story in a million years that said black conspiracy theorists are spreading rumors about the Evaluate shooting. Would they ever say that? Um, if they did, they would they would make it in real like a small story. It wouldn't be their front page story, Lee, uh, or it wouldn't be something that'd be right. very li- lightly talked about. Just and just because they say they just so they can say, oh, we we spoke about this, we covered it. Yeah, no, that's a good point, and they might do that, but I I don't think they'd even dare talk about it. And you don't talk about, I appreciate the fact that here's another community, progressives. Example of stuff that progressives know that other people don't. If you mention Jimmy Dore to progressives, everyone knows who he is. But if you mention Jimmy Dore to certain groups of people, they'll have no idea what you're talking about. Every every subgroup of human beings has people they know, events they know, things they think that are right, that are general knowledge, and things they think that are wrong, that are general knowledge. Do you know what I'm saying, Rod? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there that, that, you know, certain subsections here in America have uh, different information or they, you know, circulate different information. But sometimes when it comes together, that information sometimes correlates uh, to the things you're saying. That's right. And and I'm not knocking it. And I, the reason I wouldn't do a story on look what black Twitter thinks is because it sows division. See, there's some people who'd hear a conspiracy theory and go, well, how dumb are black people to believe that Sandra Brown was killed? How dumb are black people? But I wouldn't do that because while I think it's wrong 
Well, I think there's no proof. I don't think it's dumb. And I think the things that MAGA people believe are not dumb. They're wrong sometimes. That doesn't mean anything they think is right. But with a story like this, where people are trying to figure it out, and they're hoping to come up with some explanation, saying the explanation is this MK Ultra or whatever, that explanation provides an explanation for people. And so I, I'm just pointing out that every group has things that they believe and has things that they know that other people who are just general Americans may not know. And so. Yeah, yeah Lee, and just, to, uh, you know, we had Malik calling yesterday. He had, he had a great call. And he was talking about the D.C. sniper. And not a lot of people know that one of the victims was uh, Kenneth Bridges, who comes from Philadelphia. And he had a uh, he was he was starting up a uh, a social contract with uh, Black America. He had a a uh, organization called Mata M A T A H, and uh, so he was going to drop this social contract with Black America. It was supposed to uplift America, and he was one of the DC sniper victims. And that's that's what Malik was referring to yesterday. And you know, a lot of people don't believe he was just a you know uh, just a, a random target. You know what I'm saying? So that's that's something that you're talking about now. So, 202-521-1320, Ingrid in D.C., what's on your mind? Hey, this is a great discussion, but um, I think you can't assume that everybody in a certain group knows the same things, really. Like, you, I listened to Prairie Home Companion for years and years until Garrison Keillor said something that really turned me off. But I didn't get any of your references at all. And more than an NPR household, you maybe put yourself in a group of people who pay a lot of attention to music and musicians. Um, if you had mentioned Hank's Pretty Good Grocery or Norwegian Bachelor Farmers, I would right. have known the reference immediately. But I didn't. I didn't get. I didn't get what you were saying at all. I didn't have any idea. And some of those, that's maybe my fault. I pick references that, that I had. But but I'm making a broad point there. I, your, your point amplifies what I'm saying. That, because watch, Rod, if you hear Norwegian Bachelor Farmers, does it trigger anything in you? <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely nothing. There we go. And so there may be references that I made that aren't the best references but when I was coming up with this, what I had to do is I had to think, well, what's an example that I think NPR, to a certain extent, doesn't acknowledge that MAGA is like NPR fans. And it's like NPR fans in, this, in the sense that there are references that some people in the group will get and people outside the group wouldn't get. And they, because they want to say they're stupid. I think that's what's weird about the way NPR approaches this is it's a way of not so subtly saying those idiots, look who those idiots in the MAGA hats believe. And I think that they don't recognize that's a universal truth. So 
Ingrid, thanks for clarifying my references. I didn't necessarily make the best ones, but you you agree with the broad point, right? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And and what's weird to me is how casually they do it. Do you know what I mean? They casually say basically far right wing. It's an to people in the liberal establishment. There's no such thing as moderate right wing. They never refer to moderate right wing people believe this. They they don't exist. You're either progressive, maybe liberal, or far right wing. That's it. Have you noticed that? Yes, I, I, I've also noticed I these days mostly listen to NPR just to be irritated. How are they doing? Uh, really well, really well. <laughs> They're pouring it on. Well, because they take a consistent pro-war position. The other thing I'll mention briefly before we bring on Melon is that the the war in Ukraine is going very badly for Ukraine. Period. Donbass. It, it's looking like from things on the ground there. We talked to Mark Silvota about some of this yesterday. But I think things are about to fall apart for Ukraine in Donbass. I think their military is about to be soundly defeated. And one of the impacts of that, thanks to the calling grid, one of the impacts of that is going to be Zelensky. Well, Gonzalo Lira had a good video about this today. When the military falls apart, it creates a power vacuum. Right now, a lot of people are saying, well, guns, well, Zelensky, he's never going to negotiate with the Russians because he's a puppet of the United States. And obviously that's true. Zelensky is a puppet of the United States. But don't assume he's going to be in charge in a couple of weeks. Because once things fall apart in Donbass, there's a power vacuum created. And already there seems to be a rift between Zelensky and one of his top generals. And so anyone who thinks they knows what's, they knows what's going to happen, anyone who thinks, who feels confident about, the only thing I can read confidently is that Russia is winning the military situation and economically nothing the u.s done it's all backfired they're trying to destroy russia they've not done it but i think it's possible and this is wacky i think it's possible you could have ukraine wanting to be allies with russia in a few weeks and that's because under new leadership if Zelensky gets taken out the people in Ukraine don't want him anymore. They they say basically, you being a puppet of the U.S. hasn't worked out well for Ukraine, and they toss him out. And you get some new leadership in there. They may approach things with the West differently. 
And so I'm just saying, keep your eye on the situation. And look for the thing by Gonzalo Lara today. And he points out the, the danger, because with a power vacuum, nature abhors a vacuum. So they're going to look for a new leader. And I'm, I'm not going to say it's going to happen. I, I wouldn't be so bold as to predict that. But predict the unpredictable. And so a lot of events could happen. Now, when we come back, we'll talk about that and more issues with the great Minel Chan from Fall Lines right here on Sputnik. Coming up next on The Backstory. back on the back story 105.5 fm am 1390 is where you can find us in the empire of lies capital washington dc we're joined now by the great manuel chan our friend who's the co-host of fault lines heard every morning here on radio sputnik hey manuel how you doing hey there lee good to be on with you thanks you now remind me again Tell people how long you've been in the news business. Uh, gosh, you're going to force me to date myself, which is okay. Um, about 15 years. So a long so time. You're been around the news industry. You're pointing out that it's just, you're 16, right? <laughs> That's right. I started in diapers. And you're a prodigy. Now, Manila, even 15. 15 years ago, I remember, did you think when you started in the news business that you'd be covering stories like 19 children shot to death? Oh, as horrible as that. I mean, I mean, this is amazing that the fact that this story comes up every couple of years. Does it seem like that? Well, I knew at least where I was, where I'm from. And back then, I would say in the 90s, you assumed that if you wanted to go into the news industry, that your your path to doing so would include, you know, covering local news and the horrible things that happen at local news. And, and it was never anything like this, I felt like in the 80s and 90s. It never, it didn't look like this. But certainly, I mean, I was a teenager when Columbine happened and and, and that was kind of, a watershed moment, if you would, I feel like for for people of my age group, right, the the end of the Gen X, the the as they call them, the geriatric millennials, people in my age group remember Columbine viscerally. And that kind of shaped our worldview about our safety at school. So keeping that in mind, I would say growing up wanting to be a journalist and to becoming a journalist, I I could not imagine the that I would be covering this to this capacity this number of mass shootings because we are not even in June we're still in May 
we're almost in June, but we have already had well over 200 mass shootings. Now, how does the FBI define mass shootings? Those are, I forget if it's three or four, but at least three people need to be shot for the FBI to consider that um, for their crime data to register as a mass shooting. And here in the U.S., we're, we're not quite at the end of May. We have already registered over 204, I believe, mass shootings. So we are on track for more than one mass shooting in America per day. Now, if you told me this in the 90s when I was in high school, I would have never believed you. I would have never guessed that we would become, I mean, we were violent in the 90s. I think America has a violent history, but I would never imagine that we would get to this place in life where somebody could be so deranged that they would go into an elementary school and take their grievance of the world or life, society, social media out on innocent second, third, and fourth graders. I mean, these are kids from age of seven to nine. I, I would never imagine that. And and the way the press covers it is also, I feel like, in a in a sick way, it's wall to wall. I think there's a little bit, there's a, a delicate way they could cover it where you don't um, almost inspire or register in the heads of sick young people to do a copycat, because I don't know if you heard, but just yesterday, a, another teenager was caught with a rifle outside of a school in, I believe in Dallas. So again, in, in Texas, in the, in somewhere in the greater Dallas region. Uh, but that kid was stopped and he told the authorities that he was a copycat. That's crazy. Yeah, no. And I think I read that yesterday. I could, I, I have the dates wrong, but that between the beginning of the century, 1900 and 1970, there were no school shootings at all. None. Yeah. And, and if that's not the exact dates, it's around there. Mm -hmm. This, and you're right, you're right. Columbine was something. And I would say this is even more shocking than Columbine because that was, uh, students shooting students. Right. But, right. I, I feel like that was a direct, you know, those, those two boys, um, they had a direct grievance with those other kids and, and they were, you know, I'm, I'm not obviously not justifying their actions, but at least we as a society, as parents could make sense of that kind of carnage that it was teenager against teenage violence. This is, an 18-year-old boy going in to slaughter literally a room full of little children who are still in the single-digit age, they, that's a special kind of evil. That is a special kind of crazy. And, and I, I use the word evil, too, to describe it, because I don't know how to make any sense of this except to say it's evil. And... It, Saying this is mental illness doesn't do it justice. It's destruction of people who did nothing. And uh, it is bizarre. And luckily, we have politicians and all who bring us together at times of crisis. So let's get that clip ready. Here's Beto O'Rourke at the meeting yesterday. And... I, Let's let this clip run and 
You you heard about it in this middle, of course. Absolutely. Okay, let's play the clip if people haven't heard it. This is Beto O'Rourke, former Democrat presidential candidate, confronting a room where law enforcement officers, people like Senator Ted Cruz, and people like Governor Greg Abbott were dealing with the grief of parents. I mean, that's fair to say, right? That's what they were dealing with. They weren't making political speeches. They were saying this is awful. And Beto stood up, and here's what Beto did. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Sit down. You're out of line and an embarrassment. Was after El Paso. Sit down. Get out of line. The next shooting is right now, and you are doing nothing. No. You're offering a this is totally predictable with you. Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you are out of line. Sir, you are out of line. Please leave this auditorium. I can't believe you're a sick. You would come to a deal like this to make a political issue. Now, Beto made the point that this is not doing anything to help. And it's completely predictable. June else's children's funerals, completely predictable. That's going to follow. And it does nothing to help solve this, keep it from happening in the future. Should he interrupt children's funerals and point his finger and lecture people? Minnell, what did you think of that? Ugh, yeah, I saw that as it happened. Now, we should tell the audience that that press conference that Governor Greg Abbott was was holding was not a political speech. We should also note that Beto O'Rourke is he won his primary. He is going to he's going to face Governor Abbott, who's going for his third term as governor as, uh, in Texas this November. So Beto is running against him. OK, so that's the premise of Beto's douchebag move there. Now, the governor, the sitting governor, Greg Abbott, was updating the community and and really all Americans. Uh, It was just an update of this is how many souls have been lost. This is what we know so far about the shooter. This is, you know, it, it was just an update. And he was hearing out the families. And Beto, who, as you said, as you rightfully pointed out, is a failed one time presidential candidate. He got up there and made that about him. He made that about him, not the families, not the updates for the rest of the country. He made this about him and made this a political spectacle all about Beto. Now, the polling data that I'm looking at from Real Clear Politics, which is they're they're looking at it's an aggregate of 16 different polls. Beto is way, 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 way in the arrears by easily an average of seven points. So this guy's not going to win. Beto's not going to win. He walked away easily with the Democratic nomination uh, with, I mean, with over 90% of the, the Democrat vote. But Texas, let's face it, is a deeply red state and a deeply Second Amendment state. And all the polls all across Texas show that he, Governor Abbott is easily seven points ahead. So 
I don't know if this is a stunt for Beto to put out there to make himself look relevant and strong against, you know, gun violence, but it was certainly an inappropriate time to to do such a thing when really not just that that town, but an entire country, parents all over this country were grieving with those families and that he was he was shameless, terrible. Now, I saw on Twitter some people in the comments were cheering him on. They were saying he was speaking truth to power. And they were saying things like, Greg Abbott has blood on his hands. By what possible standard does Greg Abbott have blood on his hands? If he had signed a law into place giving 18-year-olds AR-15s, that would be one thing. But all he did was not make it illegal. And I'm not clear under what authority he could make it illegal. The Supreme Court, the Second Amendment is pretty obvious. Do you see Mm -hmm. any way Greg Abbott, try to to make the worst case. And by the way, it's maybe inappropriate, but I noticed this old joke that Manila made there, where she referred to Greg Abbott as a sitting governor Oh, when he's Lee. bound to wheelchair. <laughs> I was very impressed, Manel, edgy. edgy. <laughs> I but, realized when I was saying that, as it was coming out of my mouth, I went, oh, well, darn, I guess he's always sitting. I shouldn't have said yes. that. But, yeah, you know. That's true. No, no offense, the Governor same, Abbott. The same way FDR was a sitting president. That's right. But, no offense. But how, how does Greg Abbott have blood on his hands? What did he do? that directly led to what legislation did he, aside from not banning guns. Right. Right. I mean, ah. Lee, the, the ladies of the view were all applauding Beto O'Rourke's move. So yes, I feel pretty at ease knowing that if I feel or do the opposite of what the ladies on The View say or do, then I'm probably sitting on the right side of history. Um, so those ladies were cheering him on, saying he's saying the right stuff. And that's fine. But that doesn't that doesn't change the fact that he interrupted, deliberately interrupted this press conference that was meant for an update for the country, a grieving country about 19 little babies that died. And he chose to take that that moment to make it about himself. And I think it's because he knows this is a political act. It's a stunt. He is easily seven points. I mean, there's some here where he's down 15 points, 11 points. I'm, I'm looking right at it. There, I mean, there are hardly any, any counties in Texas that Governor Abbott is, you know, is close close to Beto. Beto's far behind. So I think this is a political stunt. So he gets himself, you know, a, a little more brand recognition going into the, the general election in November. Uh, he'll get recognition. All right. We'll see how that goes for him. As a douchebag. I, I predict his numbers are going to go down after this, even though some people are cheering him on. I really think when they get their senses, and the reason Beto Rourke knew he could do that is he knew he would have some backing, mm-hmm. like from the view, 
like you point out. <laughs> no, but but he did. He said if I if I wake up and point go to this meeting and I point to people and start yelling at them, some people will think I'm a hero. And I think that's a way in which the media also inspires copycats. Because well, I copycats think it, of all different kinds, right? Yes. That's that's what I'm saying. Because I think the media inspires politicians to do this sort of behavior again and again and again. And it's not helping. I think it's creating a spur divide sense. Now, I I think it's possible this is going to have some effect on the gun laws. And I'm not sure what. We have the Second Amendment, so that limits what anyone can do. Outright banning guns not going to happen. Right. But I think it's possible this could have some impact on gun laws. And frankly, I don't think any impact on gun laws is bad. But what I think a lot of people are worried about is the politicians and the people on The View they don't want subtle changes, right? They right. want an outright gun ban. Do you get that impression? Oh, totally. I, I totally believe that the ladies on The View um, represent a very vocal, loud minority of Americans who I think a lot of Americans, the majority of Americans believe in the Second Amendment, but they they want to see some tougher measures around it, especially with high capacity rifles like an AR-15. Um, I'm not against that myself. I'm a pro Second Amendment person. However, I'm not against tightening controls of things like having an 18 year old be able to purchase, you know, lethal arms like this. And, and there, there are some common sense gun measures and we hear about this all the time and there's common sense uh Repub or democrats rather uh that agree that they don't want outright bans i mean gabby giffords i mean i was a reporter in arizona at the time when she uh just recently recovered from being almost mortally wounded by this gunshot to the head right and she still hadn't changed her stance that she was pro second amendment she but she was supportive of having certain measures put in place for high capacity weapons and it stopped there. But for some reason or another, I, I couldn't tell you why so many people, you know, this is always, um, they're always at loggerheads in, in Washington over this, as you know, but nothing really changes. And I'm not sure why, I mean, Joe Biden signed his phony baloney ghost gun law, um, the bill into law a few months ago. But I mean, you show show me a crime where a ghost gun was used, a, a 3D printed gun. Nowhere, nowhere. <laughs> and, and, and show me a crime that was committed by somebody that, you know, usually doesn't have a history of crime to begin with. I mean, yeah, this kid was 18. He was too young to even have a history. But Generally speaking, generally speaking, most people that commit gun crimes, that's not their first crime. And law-abiding citizens who own guns should not be punished for the bad guy 
that has the gun. They need to figure out a way to get guns out of the hands of the bad guys and not punish everybody else that's a, a law-abiding citizen. Now, Elon Musk, you've been covering the news. You heard of him, right? Elon yeah, Musk. Uh, I feel like he's a rich dude. Yes, he is. But he's he made a statement recently. He was never going to vote Democratic again because mm -hmm. the Democrats are the party of division and hate. That's what he said. And he also said on a tweet that he thinks a more moderate version of both political parties would be better. Now, let me agree with him, but use a different word. Because I think what he's talking about is reasonable. I don't think he means moderate. Because some positions you shouldn't be moderate on. Yes. I don't think being moderately in favor of free speech we already have that. That's the problem. <laughs> right. right. But I think reasonable is if if he means by moderate reasonable. I think he's right. And I think the Democrats have become the party of absolutely no reasonableness. And I think the Republicans are more reasonable. Would you agree with that bias statement? You know, Lee, if you asked me this in 1996, I would have said, hell no. But times have changed. The party has changed. The party, the Democrat Party that I grew up with in the 80s and 90s are no more. The party that represents unions and working class folks like the family I grew up in, immigrant working class folks. I don't feel like that's what the Democrat Party is now. They have been co-opted by the woke left, they represent a small and vocal minority, just like those ladies on The View, and they clap loud, and you you have social media that puts everybody in an echo chamber, so people think this is you know more true and more in fashion than it actually is, and most Americans, to Elon's point, are, are moderates. You know, they, they're pro-guns, but probably... You know, not against having some some certain guidelines and restrictions on some things They're, You know, most Americans are pro-choice, but probably not all the way to the point that the baby is viable outside of the womb. So, you know, when you look at things like that in modern day politics, I, to some degree, Elon is right. I'm not sure if moderate is the right term, but the 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 modern day Democrat Party is now co-opted by the woke left and co-opted by groups like BLM and defund the police. And and in the old days, that's not what the party was about. The party still had some family values in place, still had bread and butter issues at the forefront of their docket, and that party is dead. So I guess to whatever Elon is trying to say about the description of the party, there needs to be, I call the, I call what we have now, not a binary choice. I call it a duopoly because at the end of the day, the left and the right, they're, they're, they both echo and sing the same songs about, about war hawking in, in Ukraine, as you were talking about with uh, the caller before I jumped on air. Uh, it's, it's really a duopoly because when, when it boils down to it, they're not going to make any changes, any, any massive noticeable changes on gun laws. They're not going to back away from sending all our money to Ukraine while babies in America are starving. 
uh, without formula. They're going to fund. I've been saying MAGA. Joe Biden's policy has been make Ukraine great again because you know how much money could have gone that, you know, if you broke down $40 billion and funded our schools for maybe, you know, some security gates or fund giving, giving school districts money for security guards or, you know, something like that. Hell, get, call me crazy. Buy the kids some books, buy them some computers, help people get out of poverty. But the Democrat party isn't doing that. Joe Biden's Democrat party isn't doing that. Because the number one reason that people turn to crime, whether it's murdering 19 little kids or you're walking into CVS in San Francisco and just taking the whole shelf with you, shelf of product, the number one problem that causes crime is the fact that people are poor and see no way, no path forward. So just like the, the guy, um, gosh, what's his name? Adam Lanza in, at Sandy Hook and, and this kid, Salvador Ramos. These are these are kids that are not well liked. These are kids with pro- problems at school. These are you know, this this guy was a, a high school dropout. And Uvalde is, is you know, a, a lower income community. So most of a lot of crimes could be solved before they actually become crimes if the government would apply their money, which is not their money, I should say, our money, to our people here and make lives better for people here. And maybe people wouldn't turn to some sort of crime, like, I don't know, murdering people. Now, in the last couple of minutes we have here, uh, on the Ukraine-Russia war, are you noticing what I'm noticing? And it's not being represented in polls. But I'm noticing when I talk to people and listen to people on social media that more people than ever, a lot of people who six months ago just reflexively didn't like Russia (laughs) have been forced by this war to look into Zelensky is on the same side as Hillary Clinton and Klaus Schwab and George Soros. And a lot of Republicans I've noticed are starting to take a second look at Obama, forgive me, a, a second look at Putin and at Russia and liking more when they look, actually look into it and don't just buy into the shallow propaganda. They find that they don't agree with Ukraine and that they like you, Russia more. Are you noticing that at all? Uh, I, I, I think because you have moved away from the belly of the beast, Lee, that you're noticing normal Americans waking up and saying things. Remember, I'm still in D.C., and they're not normal people here. They are greatly impacted by whatever, you know, Jake Sullivan is saying or Ned Price is saying, whatever spook from a three-letter agency, whatever they're saying on Twitter, on social media, and it feeds itself here. So here in D.C., oh, no, it's still vehemently anti-Russian everything. You can't even, you know, say you work at a Russian restaurant. Businesses are are losing uh, income because people are basically boycotting without saying it outright. Anything remotely Russian. I've seen businesses change their names. Okay, change their names because of discrimination when they have nothing to do with any of this. 
they're just they happen to be Russian people and they're being discriminated against here in D.C. And this is supposed to be, you know, a place of the learned people. And we're you know, it's such a, a amalgamation of everybody is here. No, that's not where I'm, where I'm at. What I'm seeing is is horrible, spiteful, mean people that discriminate against anything Russian. Well, I'll point the one objection standard I have is that 11 senators, Republicans, didn't vote for this Ukrainian war funding. Mm -hmm. And I would think they would have been afraid of being branded as Putin puppets or whatever. But 20 percent of Republican senators voted against this. And that was stunning to me. But the brave Manila, Rand Paul. Manila, great parents. People can find you on fault lines. On radio spending here in the mornings. That's right? right. Thank you, Lee. Thanks, Manila. Great conversation with Manila Chan. We'll take a short break. We'll come back on the backstory. Live from the Empire of Lies, a bastion of truth and free speech in the vast barren wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is a backstory. Great conversation with Manila Chan. Always like talking to Manila. She knows a lot about the news, of course, because she's clued into it. And Carter Laren is with us today as our guest host. Hey, Carter, are you there? I am. How you doing, Lee? Good. Good. Welcome to the show, Carter. Great to have you on with Thanks. us. And coming up this hour, we have Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies, and we'll be talking about immigration. And Carter, may I ask you to say with the most gravitas you can the name of the show? The Backstory. Well done. Now, Carter... I don't know. Do you have anything to say about this shooting? Uh, how, how do you how do you approach your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it doesn't need to be said, but I'll start with it anyway. Obviously, it breaks my heart, especially as a father. But I imagine even as a not a father, it would it would break my heart to to hear stories of of these kids being murdered. Um, you know, I'm I'm. Obviously dissatisfied with the left's reaction. If you listen to NPR, they are interviewing people like David Hogg saying, well, if it saved just one life, we have to do universal background checks because they're very popular. And you see California banning ghost guns. But, you know, in this case, neither one of those things would have prevented this at all. So those are completely uh, irrelevant um, things to do. And, you know, I see emotion being used as a weapon. And I don't – something that really bothers me is when people use emotions without vetting them um, through their prefrontal cortex and think about the long-term consequences. And one of the reasons that we have a Second Amendment is because governments, as horrible as this was, 
governments do much worse. All you have to do is read the Gulag Archipelago if you want a vivid example, but you can also look at Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, and you can look at what Mao did in China. And there's a host you can see. You can even watch smaller examples like, uh, you know, the uh, the butcher of La Cabana, Che Guevara, in in Cuba. Governments do horrible, torturous, disgusting things to their people, and and saying, well, we have to stop this by banning guns, uh, I think is an attempt to solve a problem in the short term while introducing a much larger problem in the long term. And what I see from the right is just, well, we need security guards in schools and this and that. And no one is asking the question that I think, you know, it's a hard problem and I understand that it's hairy and messy, but the real question is, why is this happening? I mean, guns have been around for a long time. 50 years ago, we didn't have this much mass shooting going on. Certainly mass shooters are still, it's, you know, those deaths are still a very small part of homicides and a small part of gun violence in the United States. But nevertheless, why are they on the rise? Uh, that's a very complex question. Uh, it involves psychology. It involves uh, taking a look at what's going on in communities and our culture and, and larger um, shifts that might be causing problems and those are hairy and messy problems and neither side really wants to address it because it's hard. They just want to do the thing that looks good for their constituents, either pass a gun law or argue for armed cops in schools and wipe their hands of it and be done. And that really bothers me because I don't want to see more kids get shot by lone gunmen. Now, what do you think the role is of virtue signaling in this how how do you interpret the concept of virtue signaling, first off? Well, uh, I usually think of virtue signaling as an advertisement of a position, whether it's authentically held or not, in order – but the, the for the primary purpose of uh, raising your social status among peers. Is that how you think of virtue signaling? Or do you have yes. a different idea? No, no. I, I think so broadly, but – Politicians do it all the time. And this is a typical area where Beto O'Rourke could go into that meeting and act that way because mm -hmm. he thinks he's right. Because he's opposed to shootings. And so he can say Greg Abbott has blood on his hands. I can see nothing Greg Abbott did that you could say, can, aside from not banning guns, which Greg Abbott has no ability to do. He is he does not have blood on his hands. But the political virtue signaling, I see it all the time. And I see it as a form of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy with an arrogant face. What do you say? How, how so uh, hypocrisy? Like what's give me that argument a little bit. Tease that out for me. Well, because they're not actually solving a problem. They're doing nothing to solve the problem. They're proposing a solution that is not really proposing a solution. And they're making a statement to show how on the right side of the issue they are. For instance, Beto O'Rourke obviously thought he was justified in saying and doing. If you'd stopped him and said, wait, how is this going to help? How is this going to make people feel better? He would have had no answer. But he felt the need to do it, despite the fact that it would have no, 
you know, it's it's part of I I view it in broad philosophical terms as a mind body dichotomy. You know, mm. a philosophical issue. Yes, that, yes. That they they think merely talking about a problem is enough. And so, what do you say, Carter? Yeah, I mean, I I think even for someone like Beto O'Rourke, I'm hesitant to say he doesn't actually care. I mean, I can't imagine you'd have to be a pretty a pretty hardcore lizard person to not care. Um, maybe maybe Klaus Schwab doesn't care, but I think even some of the most horrific politicians that you and I would despise still care. They see this and, they, and it upsets them, but they immediately their mind immediately switches to how can I use this um, to push uh, a political agenda that either they do care about or that they know will be popular. Um, and so I, I can see that as hypocrisy. But it's you know it's interesting because there's so much moral uh, grandstanding. There's so much sanctimony um, coming from the left on this, and they and they run around and say things like, "Well, you know, universal background checks, blah blah blah." blah. That wouldn't have even helped in this case, and and they don't even they don't even acknowledge that that's not that's not even a solution to this particular problem. The only thing that's a solution to this problem, and I'll put solution in quotes, is outright banning or maybe raising the age of purchasing guns, um, which I'm against. So uh, because that has other consequences, right? And they don't want to talk about any of the other consequences. It's a, it's a pure emotional play. There's no rational discussion about it. And I think conservatives are afraid to have the discussion about it because no one likes to be on the side of saying, yeah, it's a tragedy, but I don't want to do this thing that a lot of non-thinking people believe will save babies, right? Because you, you, you get vilified if you're the one who stands up and says, nope, I don't want to, I don't want to restrict guns. You, you get painted as a baby killer and a baby hater. Um, and you know, you're no more of a baby killer or I mean, you're less of a baby killer or a baby hater than a socialist who votes for socialist policies is Stalin, right? Like those are, you know, things have consequences. Y your political views have consequences in reality. And, you know, by I don't want gun laws because I do care about babies, not just the ones that were killed two days ago, but the hundred million that were killed last century of people, innocent people by their own governments and the babies that will be killed and parents who will be killed and, and the, the risk to the, the authoritarian uh, decimation of our society. If we can't fight back, that's the purpose of the second amendment. So, you know, it's people have these arguments about empathy. It's not about who feels more. That's a stupid discussion to be having. And I wish we could get off of that discussion and and not be talking about, well, you don't care or I do care. That's not the issue. The issue is what really can be done and what's the problem? And I think the problem is super complex. Why why are Lee, why fifty years ago weren't kids picking up it, you know, you could get semi-automatic rifles fifty years ago. Why weren't they going into elementary schools and shooting children? Why was that not happening fifty years ago? Because gun laws were more lax 50 years ago. In fact, they had rifle clubs in schools 50 years ago, many schools, probably especially in places like Texas. Why now? It has nothing to do with gun laws.
Now, Rod, get ready, because I'm going to take Tarif on the phone here and then come back to that clip you have and have you set up and intro it. Okay, that's the schedule. 202-521-1320. Tarif, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Um, I have a rant today. If you don't mind, leave. Y'all can just bear with me. I know, okay, first I'd like to say free drone signs. And for the next six months to the election, and probably after the uh, six months after the uh, election, my life going to be turned in more and more into hell because I'm a whistleblower. And the closer you get to election day, the more crazy things happen to me, right? You know, I just was treated with the most disrespectful way possible at a Burger King, okay? I'm sorry for bringing it up, but um, i tell you what. How you deal with this, is, 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 I got to deal with this in a peaceful manner like I've done. So I'm going to say this to the Biden administration. If I ever come across any information, somebody leaking information on somebody in a Biden administration or Kamala Harris, especially you, Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris is an Eastern star. She's a Mason. I used to be a Mason. I don't practice it anymore. And people talk. So let me tell you something. If I ever come across something, I'm going to share it. And I swear to God I will share it. Because my life been turned upside down. I know for the next six months, it's going to be even worse because my chance to testify in front of Congress and the Senate is going to increase. So I got to be careful that I don't get thrown in a mental institution or prison or, or something else terrible happened to me. I got to watch what I say and everything like that. Thank God I kept my cool. I explained to the police when it was called what happened. I, thank God I filmed it and how I was treated today. But I tell you one thing, I'm just going to, when I deal with these crazy little people on the street or whatever, I'm just, do they curse me out to do whatever to me? I'm going to say it's all good. It's going to be better for me. Next year or two years from now, when I have to testify in front of uh, Congress, I'm just got to swallow my pride and keep on moving. So let somebody leak out some information on somebody in that uh, White House. I'm going to share it on the radio show. I'm not playing. I got I to gotta get back in a justified legal manner using my mind. Not my physical body where they can put me on the ground, you know, throw me in the mental institutes or take me out. I know what I'm talking about. Thank you all for taking my call. God bless you, Lee. Thanks, Tariq, and feel free to share it on this show, because I know you call those shows, too. But, okay, so we have a clip now. You mentioned Klaus Schwab. So, Rod, set this up. You found this. What is this clip? And it relates to Klaus, doesn't it? Yeah, I saw Cheryl Ackleson put out a tweet of, of this movie. I had never heard of this movie. I'd never seen it. It came out in 1981 called, uh, let me see, Early Warning. And it's pretty much, it's like this meeting of all these people from different countries. You see there's Arab man, Asian man, European, and it's pretty much like a, a World Economic Forum, a Davos type meeting. And this guy, you'll hear in this clip, he's talking about the energy crisis, food shortages in America, and setting up a world one world government. So it's pretty much exactly what we're going through, and this movie came out in 1981. Okay, let's roll the clip. Since our last meeting, we've made tremendous progress. And I'd like to say that most of the credit goes to our extremely efficient International Research and Development Committee. 
would like to thank each and every one of you for your hard work and dedication to our cause. In reviewing this year's progress, let me say that we have been highly effective in conditioning the people's minds to accept our solution to the world's problems. The energy crisis here in the United States was exceptionally successful worldwide, and we expect similar success with our upcoming food shortage. Our labor leaders have made great progress by causing confusion and work stoppages in all areas of the world. Financially, the dollar is being devalued even faster than we could have hoped. Politically, the public has lost total confidence in any form of government. The threat of universal war is a daily possibility. As you know, we ourselves do not need to hold any visible office of leadership. As a matter of fact, it's better that we do not. If we control the finances, news media, food, transportation, energy, we control everything. It is important that you, as world leaders, keep our program before your countrymen. With our World Bank and computer program operation, we now have the capacity to control the financial affairs of every human being on Earth by giving each person his own computer number. Anytime his number is used, we would know his financial situation at once. You could not buy or sell anything without his computer number. It will simplify their lifestyles tremendously. The end result will be a one-world monetary and government system that we alone will control. So, Carter, do we live in a dystopian 1980 TV movie? Um, almost. In some ways, I think we do. And I think, uh, you know what? All I, you know, obviously, the the, the parallel to Klaus Schwab there is is undeniable. But you know, the thing it what this made me really think of was uh, CBDCs, uh, central bank digital currency, and I think for a lot of people. If that gets rolled out, that's the hill to die on, um, because I think it's game over and dystopia is unavoidable if that gets rolled out and they're talking about it. So I'm not I'm not trying to be a doomsdayer, um, but. Yeah, I mean. I don't think that movie clip is very far off from the reality of the world that we live in. So, yeah. I'm going to go watch no, it. You're well. You're a very well-read person. Do you think we live more in Atlas Shrugged, Brave New World, or 1984? <laughs> I think we live more in Atlas Shrugged, and the reason I will say that is um, I think the philosophy and ideas are more important than the technology. So obviously technologically we don't live anywhere near Atlas Shrugged. It, both 1984 and Brave New World were not really exactly there technologically either. Um, so there's some misfits. Uh, and certainly they got some, some, you know, surveillance and, and um, indoctrination of children stuff. More right to the, you know, there are specifics on that that aren't in Atlas Shrugged. But um, I see the Atlas Shrugged philosophy uh, permeating everything. And that philosophy is better articulated. The current philosophy of our leaders is better articulated in Atlas Shrugged than it is in 1984 or Brave New World, in my opinion. What do you think? You've read all three. Well, yeah, I, I think that that broadly we live in Atlas Shrugged in a lot of ways that are subtle and most people wouldn't get. You know what I'm saying? Most people not understanding yeah. the philosophy 
I think we'd miss some of it. But I think clearly, and I think also the hope, are you at all hopeful about the future? You've talked about being blackpilled before. Do you have any, do you see any possible rays of sunshine, even on the horizon? Uh, well, yeah. I'm so I am blackpilled in, in many ways, but the flip side of that, Lee, is this is probably one of the best times to be alive as a human in the history of humanity. Um, you and I are having this conversation. We, I wouldn't know you. 20 years ago or 30 years ago, we live in different places. I, you know, I, unless your radio show is nationally syndicated and I happen to listen and, you know, we, we just would never, would never be able to have these conversations. The people that are in your community, you wouldn't have met the people in my community. I wouldn't have met. So I, I, there's, there's a lot of advantages to technology and, and stuff that, that can help. Um, I'm, when I say that I have a little bit of hope, um, I'm going to describe it, and a lot of people think that what I'm describing is is bad because they have their definition of success is different. I don't have hope that the United States will last as the entity that it is with the 50 states it has in its current form for very long. Now, I don't know what very long means. could be several decades, but I, I don't think the United States will last. The flip side is I don't think the ideas that founded the United States will die. Um, because there are enough people that do care about those ideas. And I don't really care about whether the the political structure of the U.S. lasts. I mean, it would be nice, but I don't really care about that so much as I care about communities with freedom and liberty-minded people uh, continuing to exist. So I'm a big fan of exploring things like Free State Project or Texas Secession or like I'm a big f fan of understanding whether those can work, how they would work, people kind of co-locating or or moving somewhere. You know, I don't think fighting the horde of of zombies who are controlled by woke sorcerers is going to ultimately work. But separating ourselves from them, that might work um, and we can let them implode. We just need a lifeboat off of this Titanic. But I think we're pretty clearly on the Titanic. We've, you know, philosophically, I mean, Ayn Rand saw it, right? She saw the iceberg before everyone else. And she said, this is where we're going. And maybe we had some time to steer back then, but we don't have time to steer anymore. America will hit the iceberg. And uh, I think people who love liberty need to be thinking about uh, how to jump ship, get in lifeboats, build communities that are smaller, um, may maybe entire states or even groups of states. Uh, and I know that sounds all very radical. I don't want a civil war. A secession doesn't mean civil war. But I, I think the idea that we could cleanse Washington of lizard people, I think, is just clearly not possible. And you saw what happened. Trump was a bull in a china shop, and he did very little. He couldn't accomplish yes. much. No, I think you make a great point there. And explain to people, I know what it is, but explain to people, you mentioned the Free State Project. Explain what that was. Yeah, I mean, the Free State Project is basically a libertarian project where um, I was involved in it years and years ago before they picked the state. They, so the idea was they were going to get a bunch of libertarians together, and they were going to all move to one state and try and affect the local politics and eventually have that state uh, secede or whatever. Um, they ended up picking New Hampshire. Uh, I voted for Wyoming at the time. So 
I kind of stopped paying attention to them after that for a while. Uh, but this was, you know, over a decade ago. This is a long time ago. And since then, a lot of people have moved to New Hampshire. New Hampshire does have some libertarian uh, politicians and they've, and, you know, even the Republican party there is a little bit better than other places. And, you know, I, I just interviewed a guy who's the libertarian candidate for us Senate from New Hampshire. And, and he was talking, you know, I said, look, secession's not really reasonable. Like you can't just secede, you'll get attacked and, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, his response was actually quite good. He said, look, you can do a soft secession. Look at all these States who pick particular federal laws to do, just ignore. And if it doesn't, if it's not something that they can, the feds can rally people around, then there's not really anything they can do about it. Look at sanctuary cities for immigration, right? San Francisco, for example, just doesn't, they just don't enforce immigration laws. They don't care. They're sanctuary city. That's illegal. I mean, that that's federally illegal. Um, but we're not invading San Francisco. Um, you know, look at the states that declared um, that marijuana was going to be legal. Look how many of them there are now. Well, that's federally illegal. Uh, but the fed, the feds are too afraid to fight for that one issue. So his point was, look, maybe it's a soft secession. Maybe it's incremental little by little. Okay. We're not going to do this. Okay. Now we're not going to do that. And that's something that I could see. Is it, are we going to achieve, would you achieve perfection that way? No, but you might be able to, uh, delay the encroachment of just abject totalitarianism into your state in a way that I, I don't think, I mean, look, we are going to become uh, either through a strong man on the right to, over, to, to counter some of the stuff, which I think is unlikely or just a, you know, a leftist, dictatorship. I mean, maybe whether it's one person or if it's a dictatorship of a cabal, it doesn't matter. We're going to descend into leftist uh, dystopia as a country. And I actually think that the Free State Project, one of the mistakes I made is a state is still too big. I would focus on the community. I, I think most of the things that affect your life can are dealt with Governed at a community level, not things like taxes. If you live in a state with taxes, that's okay. Good luck changing that. But I think people don't realize how much impact they can have on their lives, even at a community level. What do you think, Carl? I mean, I think you're right in the short term. Um, I think absolutely people should be. I mean, look at all the problems people are having with schools. Now, that's because we've been ignoring school boards and local politics. I mean, so if you focused more on local politics and rather than who was the president, um, we probably have better results in our communities. That said, um, you know, at one, let's say there's one county in California. They're not really going to be able to hold off the feds and the state. Uh, they don't, there's not... There's not enough political autonomy as a county going in to really survive. And I think at the next level up, if you look at a state, if you look at New Hampshire, yeah, taking over the state is not easy um, and it will take a long time. And maybe you start by counties and eventually grow. But there are enough people that are liberty minded that if they all did move to New Hampshire, they would absolutely own the state. Uh, and they would absolutely be in control of the state. So I think over time, I'm seeing more and more people 
that are liberty minded, at least in my community, starting to ask questions like, well, you know, I'm in I'm in, let's say, California or I'm in Arizona. Where should I move? Uh, and and they're starting to look at New Hampshire's on the list. Florida's on the list. Texas is on the list. Tennessee's on the list. They're starting to look at states that they think are more free, where there's more like-minded people. They can build communities with like-minded people. And I think that's, you know, I think the the, the communities need to slowly consolidate uh, until we, we find one spot eventually. And it might take a generation, but we take one spot where, okay, fine, we found the, fi- the the final bastion of freedom and we can draw a border around it and say, you know, keep away lefties. And I think if you start with a state that has no state income tax, a couple of those you didn't mention, South Dakota and Nevada, if you like mm-hmm. different weathers, depending on what you like for weather. If you like winter, South Dakota is obviously a place. If you like burning hot, then you'll do well in Vegas. But if you start with a place with no state income tax, I, 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 that's the first standard I look by. What do you think? Yeah, Robert? I mean, I know the Free State. Yeah, the Free State Project looked at a lot of different things. So one reason I think that Nevada was ruled out was um, most of the land is owned by the federal government, um, which which means there's a huge federal presence there. Um, Yes. What, the other thing that they looked at was politics. Is it easy to get involved in local politics uh, and make a change locally? That was one of the things. And New Hampshire's got – I don't remember how many people, but it's just a huge New Hampshire Congress. I mean it, basically everyone and their mother can be a congressman in New Hampshire. It's very easy. So it's easy for them to get involved and change politics in New Hampshire. And so that dynamic was important. And, and I'm not uh, politically wonkish enough to know the dynamics of – the political dynamics of, of these various states. I do know that, uh, you know, if I can use this metaphorically, spiritually, you know, the attitude of Texas is really good, right? Um, you know, you see what's going on in Florida and, you know, a lot of freedom-minded people say, yeah, that kind of stuff resonates with me. Now, granted, that's DeSantis in power today. Who knows, you know, if that will continue. Um, you know, the libertarians have their own thing. I, I have a little bit of concern with libertarianism because it doesn't, consider philosophy very much. It's, it's just focused only on, uh, government. And so the idea that if the government leaves you alone, you'll end up with a hunky dory community is false. You do need community standards that are at least socially enforced. So you have to have some kind of, uh, positive life affirming philosophy that, that people, uh, agree to and socially enforce. And I don't see that in the libertarian community too much. So I, I am a little bit trepidatious about, just following the libertarians. But those are the kind of questions people are going to have to ask. And I think over time, you'll start to see some of these states, liberty-minded people will will move to a small subset of these states, maybe even to some counties. And and over time, maybe the politics will start to change there. Maybe not. Maybe we'll, maybe people will move, someone might move to Florida and say, oh, nope, this isn't working after 10 years. Now I need to move to Texas or whatever. Uh, and slowly, uh, what will bubble up out of this is one or two pockets of freedom in the U.S. that are like strongholds for freedom that are, are enough to to kind of perpetuate it and stave off the uh, the leftist cancer. Great discussion, Carl Aaron, guest hosting today. Great discussion, especially after an awful news day and a way for people to look at practicality and politics 
and a way to improve your life. Because if all the political decision doesn't help you live a better life, I don't see the point of it. Carter Laren, thanks so much for sticking with us with our next guest, Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies. We'll be talking about the latest immigration news with Andrew Arthur coming up next on The Backstory. back on the backstory and coming to you from the empire of lies capital on the radio on 105.5 fm am 1390 joining us now from the center for immigration studies i say the top but basically the only game in town who's opposed to illegal immigration a think tank that's opposed to illegal immigration the great andrew arthur is with us andrew how are you doing Hey, I'm doing fine, and thanks so much for having me today, Lee. I would hardly say I'm great, uh, but I, I I try to do my best. Well, well, let's talk about some stuff. Let's let's talk about where the mass shooting was, because I want to bring up an issue. The Uvalde shooting. There were border patrol agents involved in that, right? Yeah, it was uh, actually the uh, Border Patrol tactical team, known as BORTAC, uh, that uh, made their way into the school, uh, managed to secure a master key to the uh, to the door. It's uh, apparently a fireproof building because it's got cinder block walls and steel doors. Uh, and they were able to distract uh, the shooter while other officers got uh, other kids out of the building. And then uh, they were able to go into where the uh, shooter was and uh, were able to um, shoot and kill him. Uh, And so that was what, and all based on press reports, that's how the uh, incident ended. I think it points out there was no immigration issue here, but the border patrol agents, it points out that they're just good cops. They're effective, well-trained law enforcement officers. And I've seen in the past few years, I'm sure you have, talk about the disrespect that Border Patrol agents have gotten over the past few years. Yeah, and you know, my relationship with Border Patrol goes back almost 30 years, back to the days when I was a young trial attorney in San Francisco, California. There was a Border Patrol sector in Livermore, California at the time. And, you know, I relied on those agents. I had, you know, INS agents and uh, officers that I could task with things. But, you know, the Border Patrol guys would, you know, do what a lot of people would pass on if I needed them to go up to Nevada County, California, which is in the middle of nowhere to get me conviction records. They would do it. Uh, And if you go down to the border and you see them operate, you see that they, you know, they're serious law enforcement uh, officers. Again, you know, there are a couple of bad ones, but, you know, by and large and, you know, well, by and large, uh, you know, they're they're good men and women. They're dedicated to the cause. They're interested in, you know, enforcing the law and stopping the drugs and stopping terrorists from coming into the United States. Uh, but they also have compassion. Border Patrol agents risk their lives, you know, in this incident in Uvalde. 
uh, a town that I know very well, uh, you know, they risked their lives in order to stop that shooter. Um, it wasn't their job, but it was their job because, you know, when you when you're on the borderly, every law enforcement job is a border patrol job. And when you have a list of important numbers, you know, the hospital and the ambulance corps and the police, border patrol actually usually appears right at the top because, you know, they're, 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 these are small police departments. Uh, and, you know, Border Patrol's around. They're the guys that you turn to when you need something done, when you, you when you know it's an emergency and you can't find a cop. You just go to Border Patrol and they will do it. But, you know, unfortunately, agents have received, you know, massive amounts of criticism over the years. And, you know, certainly more recently, most recently was the September incident down in Del Rio, Texas, about 30,000 illegal migrants uh, came across the uh, Rio Grande into the small town of Del Rio, uh, Texas, and they camped under the bridge because they wanted to be processed because they knew that DHS was going to release them. So uh, the Border Patrol was doing the best that it could with the resources that it had in order to you know, provide some sense of order. And part of that was Border Patrol sent in mounted units, uh, agents on horseback. The 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 shore is steep and slippery, uh, and you know those horses are sure-footed, and the you know mounted officers are experts in handling their mounts. A few still pictures were taken of them attempting to control you know those horses with their reins, and that you know quickly got conflated into uh, the contention erroneously uh, fallacious. Uh, that they were whipping the migrants, which agents would never, ever, ever do. But, um, you know, especially not in a situation where you're trying to control a horse, it's sort of like pulling the steering wheel off the car, you know, in order to hit somebody with it while you're driving. It's, it's you know, completely ridiculous. But that didn't stop uh, numerous people, including Vice President Kamala Harris and President Joe Biden, from uh, criticizing in the strongest terms the actions of those agents, uh, you know, uh, you know, President Biden talked about this isn't who we are as a people. Maintaining order and control, enforcing the law, ensuring safety is who we are as a people, and it's who the Border Patrol is as a core. They've been around since 1924. At the time that they got started, there are only about 22,000 people a year that cross the 1,954 mile southwest border. Um, and, you know, they uh, were there on the ground early. Now, those numbers have climbed into the millions in the interim, but they still do the same job. And it's, you know, all the more complicated by the border policies that the Biden administration has put into effect. And, you know, respectfully, with due respect to our president, um, his comments were reprehensible. And, you know, as a former judge, he's the president of the United States. He's not supposed to issue judgments until after the facts were in. And anybody who looked at what was going on, anybody who had any competence, anybody who's ever been to a racetrack or a rodeo would know what was going on in that situation. But, you know, the it was a black eye for the White House. And I think that they decided to turn it on, you know, the poor agents who were simply attempting to do their job and attempting to save lives to make it seem as if they were the bad guys in that incident. Well, I can tell you right now, they weren't the bad guys in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, they were the good guys. They were the people that, you know, uh, you know, provided order, uh, that, you know, neutralized a shooter. 
that protected children. And that's what they do every day of the week. And I think it's, you know, uh, it's appropriate to recognize their efforts, uh, you know, after that shooting, but to recognize their efforts every day of the week, because that's what they do. And, you know, again, they live in Uvalde. A lot of those guys live in you know, that area and that town and that county, there are many people, fewer than 16,000 people live in Uvalde. Uh, and I'm sure they had kids there, but that wasn't what they were thinking about. They were thinking about saving their children. Actually, every one of those children, when they walked into that building was their child and saving every one of their lives was their mission. But that's their mission every day of the week. Well, Andrew, that, that, that's a great you did exactly what I was hoping you'd do. You spoke passionately and with knowledge, intimate knowledge, because you work with these guys. I noticed a few years ago, I would say maybe maybe 10 years ago, the illegal immigration activist community began targeting Border Patrol agents. It became a tactic to demonize these guys and to try to get them to feel ashamed of what they did for a living. Did you see that? Oh, yeah. No, I constantly see that. You know, I constantly heard that in, you know, the words that were spoken by uh, by, you know, members of Congress, and you know, by the words that came out of the White House itself after that incident. Um, but, you know, I, I've known the agents. And again, I had oversight of these guys, uh, you know, during my two tours on Capitol Hill. I've, you know, I direct oversight of them. I know that, you know, some are bad. Some do bad things. But I also know that the vast majority of them are good. You know, they're they're good guys. You know, I've eaten meals with them. I've gone out at night with them. You know, they go out at, in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, in pouring rain, blistering heat during the day, blizzards. And, you know, they go out to secure our country. It's the Department of Homeland Security, Lee. They are – they're not just the tip of the spear – you know, they are the the shield that protects America from every bad thing that can come over that border. And they do it diligently. They're not going to be cowed. They know what they do. They're not going to listen to, you know, the nonsense. They're not going to, you know, they, they don't like the fact that they're vilified by, you know, in certain quarters. It, it, honestly, they should be lionized. I don't I come from a police family and, you know, they do things no member of my family would ever do. Uh, you know, under those conditions. Now, again, every cop will do what's called for. But, you know, when you're in the middle of nowhere uh, and, you know, you are, you know, one man, one woman alone, you know, trying to save uh, a migrant who's fallen into distress, trying to, you know, save a child that some coyote, some heartless animal has dropped by coyote. I mean, smuggler, but there are animals in this context has dropped off at the border. You know, that's what that's what they're there for. That's what they're good at. And that's what they do. And we should be thankful every day that we have them. We're grateful for our law, for our military, grateful for the soldiers who stand guard, the Marines, the sailors, the airmen, the Coast Guardsmen. We should be grateful for the Border Patrol agents in the same way. Now, now by the way, I see caller Al Killer on the line. Al Killer, please call back tomorrow. We'll take a call tomorrow. But, Andrew, uh, another thing, I've seen the activist community who's in favor of illegal immigration. You talk about the garbage they have to deal with, the nonsense, the Border Patrol agents. 
the activist community who's in favor of legal immigration talks about ending deportations. This has been a major theme of theirs politically recently. That's how absurd do you find the idea of ending deportation? Is there a, a, a country on the earth that does not do deportations? And why are they, again, it's, it's the nuttiest thing that I, I've, I've ever heard that they put out like it's a, a solid policy proposal. Like if we end deportations, we'll somehow make the problems at the border better. What do you think about that idea? Yeah, I mean, that's the worst idea for any number of reasons. If you ended deportations, let me just give you a fact, Lee. I believe about 15 million people applied under the recently uh, completed visa lottery for the year. It's 15 million people that want to get into the United States. If you didn't deport anybody who entered illegally, everybody would be allowed to come into the United States. Now, a lot of those people are coming to work, but, you know, most of those people who are entering the United States illegally aren't coming to, you know, be radio talk show hosts or, you know, pundits in Washington think tanks. They're coming to work. They have low levels of education. They're coming to, uh, you know, they, they have few job skills and they're going to be put in direct competition with the most disadvantaged members of American society. We want everybody in this country to get, you know, to be able not only to get by, but to thrive to have a job that they can work, to have schools that they can send their kids to. And if, you know, God forbid they get sick, they get ill, they get hurt, that they can go to an emergency room and be quickly treated. When you start allowing, you know, unto, when you end deportation, that means that you let everybody in. No country in the world that I know of, and I go to a whole lot of different countries and take a look at their uh, immigration systems, you know, is as humane as ours. There are plenty that are as humane as ours, but few are more. I, I can't think of any that's more humane than ours. And that's, you know, with our current system of deportation. The whole idea is we have laws to protect the wages and working conditions of Americans. We have these laws in order to protect the American people from criminal risks, gang members, drugs. We have these laws to keep terrorists out of the United States. If you don't have deportations, none of those laws mean anything. You know, they're they're written on, you know, Palimpsest or toilet paper. Uh, and, you know, that's the, the effects that that would have, the costs that that would impose on local communities, on our schools, on our hospitals. Uh, and again, on those uh, workers who are trying to get their start in this country, on those people who were, you know, trying to get a leg up and have a better life for their children than they had for themselves by working, that's impossible. None of those things are possible. Our welfare state collapses when you allow all of those people into the United States. Again, you know, the 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 lowest 48 percent of wage earners in the United States pay sales taxes and, you know, uh, taxes like that. And they pay Social Security tax, but they don't actually pay federal tax. The, you know, we have we don't have a very large tax. We, we do have a very large tax base. But, you know, when you bring in people who have, you know, low levels of skills, who have little education, they're probably going to be relying on the state for at least one generation. 
as those numbers climb, that means everybody else has to pay more in order to provide for them. You know, this is just basic logic. People who want this dream world in which we can accept, you know, a million, two million, five million, you know, 10 million new people per year has no idea how, you know, government works, has no idea how our communities work. They just don't have any idea. And, you know, ending deportation is a nice idea when you're, you know, in your, uh, you know, 100 level philosophy class at some cushy Ivy League institution. But when you're actually out in the working world, when you're a taxpayer, you know, when you've got kids that you want to get a good education for, you know, those things are impossible. Now, Andrew, let's let's talk about what else is going on in Texas, aside from the horrible tragedy in Uvalde. There was a recent primary race and on the ballot, because he's a representative in there every two years, is Henry Cuellar. Right. So explain who Cuellar is and why he's important to the immigration debate in the country. Yeah, I mean, Henry Cuellar is an interesting individual. He's been representing uh, a South uh, Texas district, I believe, since 2004. Uh, And he is a native of Laredo, Texas. He's actually from the district. Uh, And one interesting factoid is that he has more degrees than any other member of Congress. But that's a a side note. Henry Cuellar is also an immigration hawk. He's a man who's very much in touch with the uh, mood and the needs of his community in South Texas. Now, again, the uh, the 28th District of Texas, which uh, Cuellar represents, Mr. Cuellar represents, is probably the most Hispanic district in the United States. Uh, and it has counties that have upwards of, you know, 90 percent um, Hispanic uh, uh, residents. But, you know, an important thing to understand for people in the rest of the United States is many of those Texas Hispanics, you know, have been in the United States. Their families have been in the United States longer than my family's been in the United States. Uh, you know, they we, we call them Tejanos. They are native Texans. Uh, who were living in Texas, you know, before Texas independence, before Texas joined the union. Um, and they're very concerned about border security. You know, all of those and, drugs. And what political all parties Cuellar with? He's a Democrat. Henry Cuellar and, is and, a Democrat who is probably the biggest uh, opponent, the biggest thorn in the side of the Biden administration when it comes to the border because he actually lives there. Right. And, and, and you, you know, I point that out. It's a, a surprising position among Democrats, but he's a Hispanic and a Democrat. And you're right. He wants enforcement of immigration laws, not because he hates immigrants, because he represents immigrants, right? Yeah, no, he, he represents immigrants and he you know represents citizens. He represents people who live and work in those communities. You don't see you don't see a lot of wealth down there, but you see a whole lot of people who are working and you don't see many people just standing around on the street corners doing nothing. They want safe communities for their children. 
you know, they want um, they want you know, safe communities for themselves. They they know what an out of control border is. They understand the problems. People that live in you know Des Moines or Berkeley or you know Madison, Wisconsin, you know, can have all these you know airy ideas about what our immigration should look like or what our immigration system should look like. It's those people who live in the 28th district of Texas and in the neighboring district, districts who pay the price for, uh, you know, those, um, you know, utopian ideas that people have about how the world works. You know, they want that border to be secure. And a lot of those people who live in that district and in the neighboring district, just like in Uvalde, Texas, you know, they have relatives in the Border Patrol and, you know, I think people are surprised if they ever go to the border. Uh, you know, you don't see many. Well, you, you see a handful of, you know, Arthur Smith's Jones. Uh, but you see a whole lot of, you know, Alvarez's, Garcia's, uh, Cazares, because, you know, they are, uh, you know, Texas Hispanics. They are dedicated to protecting their uh, communities, and the best way to do that is by joining the Border Patrol. They're all about border security, and they know how important it is. And, you know, Mr. Cuellar is very much in touch with uh, that mood. He's from there. You know, Laredo is a huge port of entry. You know, they make a lot of money in Laredo by ensuring that legitimate traffic, that legitimate immigration – uh, passes through their community. But the flip side of that is they know that when there are problems, they know that if there's an issue, they know that when there's drugs, all of that comes to a halt. All of that becomes more difficult. Communities suffer. Uh, legitimate commerce suffers. Legitimate immigration suffers. Uh, just like when we talked about Uvalde, you know, those Border Patrol agents are, you know, the next line of defense for the local cops and the local paramedics. And when they're off the line and they are, you know, heating up baby bottles and changing diapers for, you know, thousands of illegal migrants every day, they're not on the line. They're not there to do that job. They're not only not there to protect the border, they're not there to protect the community either. It's, you know, like the line from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. You know, Harry wasn't there to save those men because you weren't there to save Harry. So it becomes a cascading effect, uh, you know, in those border communities when those, you know, men and women are off the line doing something that they shouldn't be doing because of poor policies in Washington, D.C. Now, what reception has Square's view on his immigration earned him in the Democratic Party? Did they give him his full throat of support? Yeah, no, no, Lord, no, no. He's vilified in the party. Uh, many people compare him to Joe Manchin, uh, Democratic senator from West Virginia, who's been the skunk at the Tea Party throughout, you know, much of the current 117th Congress under the Biden administration, who's blocked many of their efforts. He's the one who has revealed the fact that, you know, we had massively overcrowded uh, detention facilities down at the border. He's the one that took the pictures that's got smuggled out that showed everybody, you know, for the first time. And this was back in March of 2021, you know, just over a month after the president had taken office, what the effects of Joe Biden's immigration policies were. Up to that point, Joe Biden had, you know, his his approval rating on immigration had been, you know, 55 percent to 45 percent or 52 to 47 or 48 
after those pictures came out, Biden's approval ratings on immigration went in the toilet and they've never recovered. In fact, uh, you know, it, 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 it wasn't that, you know, Henry Cuellar was attempting to torpedo the Biden presidency. He wasn't. He said many times he supports, you know, the head of his party and the president of the United States. But he did it because it's a problem that adversely affected his community. So consequently, you know, Cuellar has drawn a lot of fire and a lot of uh, other representatives, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, you know, have targeted him for a primary challenge. He actually did get a primary challenge. A woman named Jessica Cisneros, it's not her first time running against uh, Mr. Cuellar. Uh, Ms. Cisneros ran against him the last time. And in fact, uh, Ms. Cisneros actually worked as an intern in his office, if you could believe such a thing. But yeah, no, Ms. Cisneros is very different. You know, she is all about providing avenues of relief for, you know, uh, aliens illegally present in the United States. Uh, and also significantly for that district, you know, she is very much pro-choice. Henry Cuellar is the last uh, pro-life Democrat left in the United States Congress, again, very much in keeping with a community that is largely Roman Catholic. They got a pretty fair number of evangelicals, too. Both of those religions, you know, uh, frown on abortion, to say uh, the least. So, yeah, Cuellar has, uh, you know, gotten a lot of criticism from his fellow Democrats for, you know, his immigration stances. Uh, he's drawn a lot of fire from progressives who don't live anywhere near uh, the 28th District of Texas or the Rio Grande. Uh, and, you know, money poured into, you know, his opponent's, you know, war chest because people don't like him. And right now he is uh, 175 votes, I think, ahead of uh, Ms. Cisneros in a tightly contested race. But I tell you the interesting part about it, Lee, you know, I can look at the election results from, uh, you know, what's coming in, what is, you know, still too close to call election. The further that you or the closer that you get to San Antonio, you know, metropolitan urban center full of right thinking people, soy de sant, right thinking people, um, you know, the more support that Jessica Cisneros have, has. When you get close to the border, when you get close to the Rio Grande, all of a sudden, Henry Cuellar's support jumps through the roof. And, he's, and we're, you know, out, getting, we're out of time, Andrew Arthur from Severing Relations Studies. You can find this site. CIS.org. CIS.org is where you can find more of Andrew Arthur's work. Carter Laren, I apologize I didn't get to you. I didn't get to Carter. But a great conversation early in the half hour. And thanks so much to Carter Laren and Minel Chen. Great guests and great calls today. We'll be back tomorrow on the backstory. Mm -hmm.